Welcome to Recovery, a series from the Anthill podcast brought to you by The Conversation. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. In this series, we're looking at moments when the world recovered from a major shock or crisis. We started in the 14th century with the Black Death. Then our second episode took us to Lisbon, which in 1755 experienced a devastating earthquake that destroyed most of the city and shook an entire continent in more ways than one. In this episode, we are jumping forward to 1918, when Europe was reeling from the combined shocks of World War I and a deadly pandemic that became known as the Spanish flu. My colleague and co-producer of The Ant Hill, Gemma Ware, has the story of what happened next. It's called the Spanish flu because the first reports of the virus were in Spanish newspapers due to wartime censorship restrictions elsewhere. But it was also known as the Purple Death, the War Plague and even the Bolshevik disease. The 1918-1919 flu was the worst pandemic in human history. More than half the world's population was infected. Estimates for the number of people who died range from between 20 and 50 million. And this off the back of a devastating world war in which 9.7 million military personnel and another 10 million civilians died. The exact origins of the flu are disputed. Some suggest it began circulating as early as 1916 in military camps in Etaples, France. But the first big wave of the epidemic hit in the spring of 1918. Mutations of the virus led to a second, much more deadly wave that autumn, and a third, slightly less fatal one the following spring. The Great War made the spread of the flu even faster and more devastating. Soldiers being sent to and from the front in Europe were living in dreadful conditions and were very vulnerable to disease. When the armistice came in November 1918, demobilised soldiers were also a vector of the virus, which spread along military transportation routes. Thousands of displaced civilians were also living in poor conditions, perfect for epidemic outbreaks. The pandemic had come to an end by the summer of 1919, partly because the number who had died from infection was so high and so many others who survived had immunity. A subsequent recovery from the pandemic can't be divorced from the recovery after World War I. The relief of peace soon gave way to an economic crisis, political unrest and mass unemployment. To find out more about how the Western world began to recover from the devastation of both the pandemic and the Great War, I've got three experts with me. Chris Colvin is a senior lecturer in economics at Queen's University Belfast. Hello. Tim Hatton is a professor of economics at the University of Essex. Hello. And Kate Chingainty is a lecturer in the history of science, technology and medicine at King's College London. Hi. Kitchen, I'm going to turn to you first. So as we're experiencing today with the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, during the Spanish flu, cities imposed their own lockdowns and quarantines in response. Some were more strict than others. But how did people's health begin to recover once these quarantines began to end? Well, the Spanish flu was was really interesting in this way because quarantine was mainly a phenomenon of the second wave, the much deadlier wave of flu, which, as you said, was in the autumn of 1918. And it wasn't true across the board that cities quarantined. 
it was only in very particular cities that quarantine measures were put into place. And flu was already something they understood as a seasonal illness. Um, And so they had the sense at that time and into the winter of 1919 that it would come back. And they continued to have that concern about uh, Spanish flu all the way through into 1920, so that you get sort of a recovery from um, the initial uh, symptoms of flu, but you always have in the back of your mind in this period that flu is inevitably going to come again. And the question was just how deadly would it be? So even in 1920, you get reports of flu, just the more normal levels of flu and worries that that might be a pandemic and this notion that everybody needs to be on standby as a result. Okay, and so you'd say the response and then the recovery changed as the waves went on. So were different things introduced? You know, were masks mandatory at some points, but not at others? What happened in that response? It depends on where you were. So during the the second wave in certain cities, so in the United States especially, quarantine was likely, masks were likely. In California, masks were taken up in Los Angeles and San Francisco particularly. But in London, masks were not required. And there was even confusion and concern about what needed to happen in in this deadly phase uh, in London in particular. And part of this was because the propaganda about the war effort trumped the propaganda about Spanish flu, or at least it sort of was in, in sort of competition with each other. And it was a choice there, as in the United States, as in other countries, about which one of those do you focus on? Which one do you want people to attend to most closely? And by and large, the newspapers focused on the war effort until it was clear that the pandemic, uh, the the wave in the autumn of 1918 was was really, really bad. And then suddenly you see a turn towards measures uh, of, of quarantine and in some cases, mandatory mask wearing, social distancing. And they even had their own version of, you know, making sure not to overwhelm hospitals and things like that. So the flattening the curve sort of rhetoric that we hear today. So that was very true for the uh, second wave of the pandemic. But the first and third and even into the the potential fourth, you don't see that. Instead, in the third and fourth, you see cities that are on high alert, but they all have very local responses to the pandemic, much as we've seen today. Okay, so it's interesting that you're saying that the war really had a a real impact on the way the responses and and the recovery was structured. What other impacts did the flu have on people's way of life and society? In terms of recovery, I think because flu is such a familiar thing and such a recurring thing, that there was a tendency to sort of understand that it was something we'd have to live with to some degree, um, and that the flu coupled with typhus, typhoid fever, tuberculosis, all of these things that are circulating in the late 19th and early 20th century cause a lot of infrastructural changes in terms of cities. So how they are organized, um, the need for open spaces, the understanding that tenements were the worst affected by uh, Spanish flu and these other kinds of ailments. And you see increasingly over the 1920s and 30s a turn towards modernism, so modernist design. Um, And that modernist design came in architecture, so smooth, rounded edges of buildings, which aesthetically recreated this notion of cleanliness, which was so important to dealing with uh, epidemic outbreaks. But you also see 
objects that are equally streamlined. So Raymond Lowy has a famous pencil sharpener that has no sharp edges whatsoever. And the notion is that this is a way of keeping dirt, dust, germs from collecting in any particular area. So you get those kinds of ideas that start to proliferate. You also get a tendency over this period, because vaccination was such a a prominent idea during Spanish flu, you get this sense that increasingly we should be looking to microbiology to manage future epidemics. And so you get a correspondingly a turn of public health away from some of these containment measures that were typical of the 19th century and towards the promise of vaccination more generally. So there's a real optimism surrounding healthcare after this period that uh, prior to this period was really only about bureaucratic infrastructural sorts of changes. So this is something that affects the way that people interact with their bodies and also with healthcare more generally after the the final waves of Spanish flu. I mean, today we're seeing that a lot more things, particularly in the UK, are being allowed outdoors. And, and the, the idea of kind of fresh air is seen to be quite important in the way we can get back to normal life. But what was happening in kind of 1918-19? Was there a similar focus on being outside and, you know, good air? Yes, definitely. The conversations about ventilation in this period are fascinating. And beginning around the turn of the century, you start to get an uh, an understanding of air that is not about its chemical elements, so not about oxygen and the you know these these elements of air, but instead about the quality of the air. So that moving air is healthier than still air, and airless places become really problematic. So over this period, and it, it sort of corresponds with the Spanish flu period, but is not necessarily caused by it, sort of, you know, picks up momentum as a result of Spanish flu. But you see over this period, this notion that living in cities is problematic. And so uh, cures for disease set you out in the woods in places where the air is cold and moves at the right kind of velocity. And there was this notion that the air over the ocean, the middle of the ocean was the the best air that you could possibly have. So there are attempts within buildings to recreate these kinds of airflows that have seemed so important in other cases. And so one of the conversations that you get about masks during the Spanish flu is this question of whether the quality of the air inside the mask is is actually causing more harm than good. So for them, the notion that moving air of a particular temperature was curative and was really very important and really sort of spoke against the notion that people should wear masks. And that's quite different, I think, than than how we think about it now. But it still has these kind of roots in modernism, that light, air and openness are, are sort of key to curing disease. And that's certainly the case during this period as well. And so as, as well as all that, I guess the world was going through this huge change that the, the Great War just ended and uh, you'd assume that there would have been a feeling perhaps of coming togetherness, that the world needed to, to work together, not just in silos, in trying to produce a, an effective global public health response. Was that the case or was it just left to each country to respond and to recover and, and to make sure that their people got back to, to good health? It was a, a mix of both. So while the Spanish flu was ongoing, primarily it was local public health officials who who were in charge of, of the response in each place. But as Spanish flu came to an end, there was an acknowledgement to some degree that coordinated efforts were necessary. And of course, this is during the, t- the rise of epidemiology and the notion that statistics actually are a good way to track and understand disease. So you do see the formation of the, um, the early versions of the World Health Organization. So the League of Nations had a, a kind of a health committee. And these were some of the earliest ways that people started 
to think about how to manage public health in the future. But you also see over this period sort of the opposite of that, which is the rise of the asymptomatic carrier. So starting in uh, the late 19th century, there's an increasing understanding that people who don't look sick can be sick. And that starts to create a scenario in which people look at people who look healthy, but different to them and say, you are to blame. So even as there's this kind of political public health organization or this notion that that's a good thing, there's also simultaneously increasing suspicion within communities about who harbors what disease. And of course, these followed kind of racial lines, socioeconomic lines and things like that. So it's a complicated situation and in some ways not very dissimilar to the, to the situation that we see in front of us today. Great, Katrin. I, I want to turn to Chris now and, and pick up a little bit on that demographic aspect of things. I mean, Chris, I mentioned it's, it's really difficult to divorce the impact of the pandemic from that of World War I. But what do we know about the impact of the two together on, on the demography and, and how to think about what happened to the population at this time? Well, we've actually got reasonably good statistics available to try and measure the demographic impacts of uh, the Spanish flu. Countries were starting to adopt standardised ways of, of recording cause of death. And so for, for the UK, at least, we have uh, reasonably good data for which we can try and work out what, what happened. And, and the, the key to understanding the demographic impact is to understand that different groups in society were affected differently particularly exposed during the Spanish flu with the very young, those uh, under the age of five, and those in the prime of their life between about 20 and 40. Uh, those between about 40 and, and 60 or 70 were, were less affected. And this is, uh, uh, this is interesting and it's not entirely resolved. Uh, but one hypothesis is that they had inbuilt immunity that they had gained from exposure to previous epidemics in the late 19th and early 20th century. Then, of course, the very old in society, the elderly, are also heavily affected. The demographic impact, it depends a lot on age, also on, on sex. So men were more affected than women. So you have the compounding effects of World War I and the flu. Those in the battlefronts in France and elsewhere were also the exact group that seemed to be most affected unusually highly affected by the flu. So 20 to 40 year olds in society have this double whammy, uh, if, if you like. The mortality impact across society depends a lot on various different factors. So if, if you map this on a map of the UK, you will see different parts of the country are, are affected quite differently. And this is a mix of different reasons for this, including demography, but also policy and, uh, and economic variables, uh, urbanization and things like that. So there's lots of co-founding uh, variables that we need to try and disentangle. And uh, that's what economists are traditionally very good at. But it's particularly difficult for this period because, of course, the war is happening at the same time. And, and that's really important because it also in, it impacts the way we think about the recovery from this period too. Is I mean, it's really difficult to say how was the recovery from the pandemic different from the recovery from the war in terms of economic recovery. Exactly. So on your last podcast that I listened to, you had guests talking about a recovery from the Black Death and actually it resulted in labour scarcity and those that survived that particular pandemic in some way benefited 
from their closest, nearest neighbours dying, right? Uh, with this one, economists have tried to do the same sort of analysis, but they have been largely unsuccessful. And the, the studies that try and uh, look at, for instance, what happened to wages immediately after the Spanish flu, they've tried to link areas and demographic groups that were most affected with what happened to wages. And there's a couple of studies that suggest that wages rose more in areas for groups that were most affected. But these studies are quite fragile. A lot of them have not yet been peer-reviewed. And there's a lot of discussion on the statistics that they use and the statistical methods that they employ. So I don't think we can, as economists, really say that there's a, an impact, a one-for-one, on mortality rates and subsequently what happens to economic activity. What's interesting about this whole piece is that economists and economic historians equally guilty have basically ignored the Spanish flu in favour of looking at other things that are happening at that time. I mean, obviously, people are going to focus on the war and, and the economic impact of the war. But textbooks on the interwar economy will not even mention the Spanish flu. They'll talk about the economic recovery from war, and they won't think about how these two things relate to one another. So it's only now that economists, in light of COVID-19, are suddenly realising that there is a, a part of the picture of their economic analysis that was kind of missing. This is a period of history in, in, in great flux, the adjustments to the economy and to society that have to happen at the end of the war, after the war in, into 1919, are quite profound. Okay, I'm going to turn to you now, Tim. So what, what was the immediate impact of the end of the war in this period on, on the economy? Was there a rush to kind of get back to normal of, of sorts? What, what actually happened? There was. I think the idea was to try and get back to 1913. After the war, the government quickly abolished economic controls to turn the economy back to uh, private industry. It cut government expenditure, which had been about half of GDP during the war, back down to less than 20%. And in 1919 to 20, demobilized uh, most of the uh, armed forces, which well, the army stood at something like 4 million at the end of the war. So that um, was a quite a rapid return to sort of peacetime conditions. Uh, and as a result of that, there was a sharp boom in the economy with a lot of investment taking place to reorient uh, production back to peacetime purposes, restocking and also meeting pent-up demand for consumer goods, as the economy sort of reverted to a sort of peacetime structure. The peak came in 1920, and then that was followed by a very sharp slump from 1920 to 21, as the sort of temporary forces ebbed away. Uh, more importantly, though, exports, which had been a, a key element of uh, demand in the British economy before the war, never recovered their pre-war level. And that became a problem throughout the 1920s and beyond. Okay, so there's a big boom. And I guess people were quite optimistic at that point. We're in this moment of peace and life was trying to get back to normal. But then there was this slump. So what happened? What did this do to people's jobs and their prospects? Indeed, that turned sour very quickly. And for example, unemployment rose from just over 2% in 1920 to over 12% in 1921. And then for the rest of the 1920s, it hovered around sort of 9%. So that was uh, historically high levels of unemployment, even before the Great Depression of the 1930s. 
what also happened was that uh, with the with the great boom of 1919 to 20, prices rose very sharply to sort of nearly three times their pre-war level. They'd also increased fast during the war. So prices rose more quickly than wages in 1919-1920. And then in the slump, prices fell faster than wages, so that the real wage, first of all, fell and then rose as prices fell faster than wages from 1920 to 21. Then for the rest of the 1920s, the real wage was sort of fairly stationary, seemingly insensitive to the downward pressure that you might otherwise expect would be put on it by persistently high unemployment. And I think this um, reflects the fact that the labour market had changed in, in important ways since before the war. This unemployment is quite difficult to get your head around, isn't it? Because you've, you've lost a generation of, of young men and yet there's still quite bad unemployment. Well, that is right. I mean, for example, uh, something like um, over 700,000 British men died in the war. Uh, a lot were injured as well, probably three times as many as were uh, killed. And although um, men were replaced by women in many crucial industries during the war, munitions industries and so on, agriculture as well, most of those women then withdrew. In fact, women's participation rate was lower in 1921 than it had been in 1911. So the total labour supply slowed up a bit over the decade that embraced the First World War. But nevertheless, by the time you get to the 1920s, there's a very serious unemployment problem. And yeah, what, what happened in terms of what people did to try and react to this and to recover from, from the unemployment? Did unions come into the picture at this point? Indeed. So the labour market had changed uh, quite uh, dramatically in several respects during the period across the war. One was that um, the hand of organised labour was greatly strengthened. I mean, union density, for example, the percentage of uh, the labour force who were union members increased from 22% in 1913 to 44% in 1920. So that's a doubling. That's up from 12% in 1900. And also the war the war saw a spread of industry-wide collective bargaining. Uh, and also in uh, trades that were less, uh, less formally organized, the trade board system spread uh, rapidly with the Trade Boards Act of um, 1918. And so by 1920, around half of the labor force were organized in centrally organized wage setting mechanisms. And then added to that, in 1919, this was partly due to uh, union pressures, which had, it has to be said, had been mounting before the First World War. There was a dramatic cut in average working hours across a range of industries from 54 hours typically to 48 hours. And that cut was not matched by a fall in the weekly wage. So you get a situation where productivity has declined across the economy. But wages, sort of real wages, remain relatively rigid and don't match productivity. And so that's one of the contributing factors to unemployment. And then you asked, uh, I think, what was done about that. And one thing which happened, again, which sort of development started before the war, was the the expansion of uh, the unemployment insurance scheme. That had started in 1911, but it was massively expanded in uh, 1920. So 
the government, I think, felt that in 1920-21 that it was necessary to do something to help all these people who are now becoming unemployed. Mainly, it has to be said, adult males. So the idea that the post-war period would see a land fit for heroes was going a bit sour by that time, especially, I think, with the, the background of the sort of spectre of the Russian revolutions it was important to try and make sure that people who sort of reeling from the effects of the war could at least uh, survive uh, reasonably well with um, with unemployment benefits, which were not terribly generous, I has to be said, but uh, were just enough to survive on. And so if we, we look at this point and then look kind of throughout the 20s, did some parts of the UK recover employment quicker than others and were able to recover better? Yes, uh, There were these differences which uh, started to emerge in the early 1920s and became more uh, evident or clearer as time went on uh, through the late 20s and into the early 30s. And that is that I mentioned earlier the uh, fact that exports, which had been a mainstay of the British economy before 1940, never really recovered. And uh, also investment collapsed a bit after the big boom of the of 1919, 1920. And so what that meant then was that unemployment was very much concentrated among workers in the so-called staple industries, the great uh, export industries of textiles, coal, iron and steel, heavy engineering and shipbuilding, these were the sort of areas where the recovery really never got going after the initial boom. And uh, what that meant was that if you went back to to the 19th century, what you would see is that different regions and different areas of Britain were very much uh, concentrated on different industries. You know, if you name a town, you can more or less tell what the industry is of that town, unlike today, I think. And what that meant, though, was that uh, unemployment then, you can see the, the great disparities, which beginning to emerge in the early 20s became bigger later on, between basically the north and the south, particularly in the north, where you've got the sort of northeastern industries, the big shipbuilding industries, and on the Clyde, and then uh, the textile districts of uh, Yorkshire and Lancashire, and then the South Wales coalfield and so on. These are the areas where there's great concentrations of unemployment. These were very much export-oriented areas. And um, one of the things that made it more, even more difficult to recover, apart from the loss of markets during the First World War that were never recovered, was the fact that the exchange rate was kept relatively high as uh, the government sought to return the economy in, in sort of consistently with the idea of going back to 1913, back to the old gold standard parity of $4.86 to the pound, which eventually uh, took place in 1925. Okay. And and Chris, I wanted to ask you about that. So many countries in in Europe had actually abandoned the gold standard, which is when the currency is pegged to gold during World War I to finance the war effort. But they start going back to it, do they, in in the 20s? So why is that happening? Well, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually slaves of some defunct economist. Those are not my words. Those are the words of John Maynard Keynes. Basically, what we can see this as is uh, those in charge of government 
budgets and, and gov government policy making are harking back to the golden years before World War One, where everything was was great, everything worked well, and uh, they want to return to this era, and they see the return to the gold standard as a sort of the crown jewel. That's what they believe made everything else function in the way they did. Of course, the world has changed quite a lot. And so a policy that may have worked before World War I was no longer fit for purpose. So what the gold standard does is it effectively locks in the exchange rates to a, a fixed weight in gold. As Tim said, there was a, a great uh, inflation in 1919, 1920, that resulted in a, a devaluation of the pound. Yet policymakers wanted to go back to the gold standard. They wanted to go back at pre-war parity. So this devaluation needed to be reversed. The pound needed to appreciate in value so it could be linked back to gold at the same weight as it was before the war, which meant policymakers did everything they could to deflate the economy. They actively encouraged prices to, to fall so that the pound could rejoin in 1925 and they could go back to normal. They could go back to the good old days uh, and other countries followed. So, so some countries did the same and some didn't. And, and did they have different recoveries as a result? Yes. One interesting comparison is with France and another one is, is with the Netherlands. So the Netherlands followed suit. In fact, they coordinated their return to the gold standard on the same day as, as Sterling in, in September 1925. And uh, whereas Britain left the gold standard in 31, or the original Brexit, if you like, it bombed out of, of the gold standard in 31 and, and was able to recover in the 30s. The 1930s weren't so serious as a depression compared to other countries. The Netherlands persisted with the gold standard. They persisted with this bad policy, if you like, all the way to 36 and suffered a very severe uh, depression. The other comparison with France is also very interesting. Uh, they returned to the gold standard slightly later than Britain and the Netherlands, but they returned at a devalued rate. So they never attempt to deflate the economy in the same way as Britain. And they didn't suffer as a result of this. They weren't punished. Policymakers at the time were, were very aware that there were costs to this. So there's a, a correspondence between the Bank of England governor and the Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1919 and 1920 saying, we need to return to gold. This is going to have economic costs. You know, you have to be aware of, of these costs, but we should do it nonetheless. You know, you know, it doesn't matter at the cost. It needs to be done. That's the sort of attitude. OK, I'm just interested to turn to either Kachin or Tim. Do you see any other examples of this period where there was pain that was caused by poor decision making like this or decision making that was a kind of pegged to an idea of what was normal? Well, I think actually just thinking about the uh, aftermath of the First World War and the Second World War in comparison, I mean, I think I think it was in retrospect thought that the government's sort of anxiousness to return to normalcy, as it was called, and that meant sort of back to the Edwardian conditions, was regarded in retrospect as a little bit of a mistake. And so basically, the uh, at the very rapid abolition of economic controls, uh, rather than sort of gradually adjusting to the sort of peacetime economy, uh, doing it all in a, uh, almost immediately, I think in retrospect, a lot of um, observers thought that was a bit too hasty. And, and interestingly, after the Second World War, the economic controls were not thrown off as quickly. And indeed, people in 1944 who were thinking about uh, the post-war recovery 
people like Keynes, for example, who Chris has mentioned, were expecting a slump, exactly as had happened after the First World War. And, and so the measures that were taken in the late 1940s were very different from those that uh, followed uh, 1918. It's interesting. We're, we're talking about that post-World War II moment in, in the next episode, actually. Um, but Kate, in, in terms of the public health response, was there perhaps like a rush to find a vaccine that meant other options or other public health measures were forgotten or ignored, perhaps? Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the quest for vaccination is really prominent over this first part of the century. And I, I think up until recently, when we talked about pandemics, preparedness was very much about vaccination. So this notion that somehow we're going to head something off before it even gets us by having a vaccination already in place. But I think in this period, there is no return to normalcy for medicine and public health, because they are transformed, not just by Spanish flu, but over this period more generally, so that both have much more power than they have had in the past, though public health in uh, local ways is is more defunded. So the kinds of notions, you know, that the idea of containing disease and quarantining and those kinds of things are less prominent. And, and the idea that as we go forward, vaccination, but also national and global organizations are going to be leaders in terms of public health is really sort of where it's at. But also you see healthcare change dramatically over this period. And so by by the 1920s, we're talking about healthcare that's much more familiar to us now, and, and also in the increasing power of healthcare over this period, so that by the 1930s, you know, in the in the American context, the uh, American Medical Association is being accused of, of being a monopoly and has uh, antitrust legislation thrown in its face. And so I think it's an interesting thing. I mean, the perception in this period that medicine is new and part of this new modern world of the 20th century is really, really prominent. And so it's very striking that that narrative of progress starts there. And yet, you know, up until this current pandemic, we never thought we would be going back to this moment where we would be doing quarantining and flattening the curve and all of these very bureaucratic measures that they were doing in the early 20th century, because we'd put all of our stock into these, uh, you know, measures to do with vaccine and the notion that we'll find the virus before it finds us. So I think it's it's really interesting hearing the way the you know economic historians or the economy changes over this period and the kinds of decisions that are making there because medicine has always seemed as though it's moving in a very different direction along its own sort of trajectory over this period. And Keisha mentioned that uh, there were a lot of attention to public health measures that uh, came in in the 1920s and 1930s. And uh, you can really see that in some, some of the key, most sensitive indicators. For example, infant mortality in, in Britain falls from about 100 uh, deaths per thousand in uh, 1900 to around 60 in, 19, in the 1930s. There's a dramatic improvement in child health uh, and in, you know, basically the spread of epidemic disease. It's quite radical in the first half of the 20th century, which is sort of strange. It seems strange on, on the face of it because, you know, this is a time, two world wars and the sort of spread of disease that happens during wartime, the Great Depression in the 1920s, before National Health Services were introduced in, uh, in, in the late 1940s. And yet there's a quite a radical improvement in, in health during that time. And I think 
uh, a lot of it is not so much due to sort of the, the, the sort of famous medical improvements, you know, antibiotics and all the rest of it, but rather to a deeper understanding of, you know, methods of prevention. And two, two key things, I think, happened. One is the uh, better understanding of um, nutrition, and the other one is better understanding of the value of hygiene. Those two things seem to me to be quite important from, from the late 19th century to the middle of the 20th century in improving uh, people's health. Obviously, lots of parallels are being drawn with the moment of 1918, both the Spanish flu and also the kind of the economic aspects. I just wondered if, if you think it's worthwhile doing that and what we could learn if, as we look ahead at this moment where we're looking to the recovery what would be kind of a, a key point or lesson that you would want to focus on? So, um, Chris, do you want to go first? Um, I think it's very useful to, to look at past pandemics because we get the full course of the disease and we can look at the, its, its, its origins, its anatomy and its consequences. Something, for instance, that we can learn that's very interesting from, from the Spanish flu is we can think about counterfactuals, what ifs. For instance, we notice in the aftermath of the flu, there's an increase in uh, tuberculosis deaths of women. And there's a convergence of a life expectancy of women with men over the, over the subsequent uh, decade. So how is that possible? Well, this is a harvesting effect. Those men who would have died of other diseases were eliminated from the population through the flu. So, so subsequently, the data show that w women are suffering from these diseases that they wouldn't otherwise have suffered from. It's, it's a selection effect. Uh, and, and so uh, by looking at the full course of the disease and, and the long run health impacts and economic impacts, we can notice these things. We can't possibly do that with our current pandemic yet. But by looking at the past, we can try and think about what ifs and, and think through the possible potential consequences in the future. And Tim, and Tim, what about you? Do you think the parallels are valid? So, well, I, th I think one of the interesting questions that uh, we obviously don't know the answer to, as far as the economic recovery is concerned, is whether or not we shall have a slump in productivity. That was, I think, a key element of the 1920s, uh, which meant the recovery was incomplete and right through until 1929 and the start of the Great Depression. It was also an element after the uh, global financial crisis of 2008, uh, productivity never really recovered as quickly as people expected. And I think if that happens again this time, then it means that the economic recovery will be slowed right down and it will be a more protracted and painful business than, than it might otherwise be. And Kate Chin, any, any final thought from you there? My sense is that the way that we understand uh, pandemics now is very, very different um, than the way that we understood them in the early 20th century. So that by the 1960s, we start thinking of pandemics as, as in the same category as other kinds of natural disasters, or even as a catastrophe, you know, sort of nuclear catastrophe. So I think we're in a very, very different moment. And I think what we can learn, though, from these past pandemics is what we haven't yet done or the lessons we haven't still sort of learned. So I think Spanish flu showed us that as all pandemics have shown us that people who live in terrible housing, who have worse health outcomes and also will suffer more in terms of pandemics. And that's a lesson we should have learned a long time ago, but we still 
somehow have not. The commonalities or the continuities between these earlier versions of pandemic and now should startle us and hopefully push us to reconsider some of these questions around how our healthcare functions, how public health functions, and how we as nations want to function in order to really protect and further the health of the public. Absolutely, and and make the recovery as kind of as inclusive as it possibly can be. Thanks very much to Kate Gainty from King's College London. Thank you. And to Chris Colvin from Queen's University Belfast. Thank you. And Tim Hatton from uh, University of Essex. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Gemma Ware, one of the producers of this show and the Conversations Global Affairs editor. We'll be back next week with part four of our recovery series looking at the rebuilding that happened after the Second World War. In the meantime, you can read more about the Spanish flu and the subsequent recovery on theconversation.com, all written by academic experts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends about us or give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This episode of The Ant Hill is produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.